Hey, so this is Hiko Simon, and according to that thing there, I am live. I'm in Australia. Uh, I tried to record this on Sunday night, but um, there was no internet. I'm living in the third world. Uh, I think it was North Korea. We got hacked. Our entire street lost internet for like 24 hours. Apparently that happens in Australia. So I, I am in Brisbane, where it is, of course, summer, as Christmas always should be. And this is a Tuesday, December 30th. And it is 34 degrees here at the moment. I'm sitting, uh, I'm an aircon refugee, I'm sitting inside, or at least in the shade at the moment. You can hear all the bugs and birds and so on, as uh, is normal this time of year. Uh, we've had a pretty good trip so far. I've been to the Australia Zoo yesterday. Um, no real plans to do very much. I do want to get down to the beach, but it's actually too hot today. Uh, we'll probably wait. We've got some more overcasty, showery days coming up. And uh, we'll probably drive down the Gold Coast, go to Coolangatta, which is where I really want to go on this trip. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Taking it very easy, of course, with the family here at the moment. But um, I did want to do two, well, a couple of things. One, the final, um, the final uh, Tokyo Tonight of 2014, at least for the weekly show, I want to do a full year in review. Actually, I want to do two year in reviews. One is going to be just talking about Japan topics here in review, and the other is going to be talking about YouTube stuff and science stuff and tech stuff and non-Japan stuff, which I actually quite like talking about, but of course I know that people might like to focus on the Japan topic. So I'll, I want to separate those and do two year, years in review. I've just been going through, like lately today, going through the, the, the non-Japan stuff. I'm going to do the Japan stuff next. I also just realized I haven't um, actually, well, I don't have very much in the way of internet connections here. I don't have a PC. I've just got my tablet. So I haven't been tracking the uh, title names. I am going to look for a title name after this, and I will post uh, a winning title, which will get a uh, their choice of uh, Tokyo Tonight swag, or other swag, from the uh, gimmeabreakman.spreadshirt.com shop. Um, so I will do that. However, um, I haven't done that before the show, uh, because I'm taking whatever moments I can get. I've got a bit of quiet time at the moment, so I'm going to sit down. Uh, obviously, it's different. It's not the live format as usual. This is pre-recorded on my iPhone six thingy so uh, I will record this and I'll upload this later so uh, hello to everyone I usually spend about five or ten minutes say hello to everyone but I know you're all there watching or probably not because it's end of year but I'm going to record this anyway also not a lot of real news topics at the moment but I've picked some out which I will talk about uh, which I've got I'll do from my iPad here and uh, yeah it comes to another show later on so let's get straight into the news topics um, so let me go back and try to find where I should start these. So of course um, the big thing uh, from the last week is, is if you haven't seen already um, the big collabs that went up last week just before I left there was of course the happy collab. Uh, big thanks to Tiko Sam for giving me all access to all the clips so I could edit that up and, and thanks to all of you guys. We got like 30 extra clips. There were already actually, Sam said there were only seven clips, but there were more than that. There were, there were, there were about a, a dozen, and there were like 40 clips of about maybe 15 people, so something like that. Um, you know, but we ended up getting 55, um, and that was between me announcing on the weekend that I'm going to do this by Tuesday, and getting it done on Monday night. It was like in three days, we got like 35 people, including some, yeah, some awesome contributions to that, and it came out really great. It, it it was, it was a lot of clips to edit, that made it a lot of effort, but actually, you know, when you match up all the dancing to the music, and you just put all the clips on top of each other, sometimes there were things where I was just moving the clips around and I noticed there was a gap, but in that gap, someone was doing something cool, and it just made it look like a fast cut, so I just left it as is, you know, a lot of the time. It, it came out really great. I was very happy with that. 
Um, big thanks to TQSM, one for starting up that collab back in May, and two for giving me all the clips and letting me complete it now as the end of your collab. And I think it worked well as an end of your collab. There was, of course, the uh, 2014 reboot of Christmas in Japan, originally from 2009 by Fat Blue Man. Uh, we did a reboot of that. Thank you for inviting me uh, to join that. Uh, give, me a, give me a break, man, Victor. And that came out fun and, and well, so that was cool. And there was also Molly's uh, collab on food and stuff that he likes. So go and check that out as well. There are links, of course, in the, my Flipboard magazine, which is linked below the video. Um, so that was all fun. But in terms of what's been going on in the news, um, one thing that uh, came up just as I was coming over was Qantas announced. Uh, I'm in Brisbane, and it's kind of funny. There are lots of uh, Japanese here in Brisbane. We just bought natto at the supermarket. There's like Japanese shops. There are Japanese people everywhere. There are half Japanese kids everywhere. Um, Brisbane has the um, biggest, or I think the best, Japanese language learning program in the entire Southern Hemisphere. It's very popular for working holiday uh, people that come from Japan here. So, you know, as Japanese-influenced cities, of course, Gold Coast is very big, and Gold Coast still has a direct flight using Jetstar to Tokyo. But Brisbane is a pretty significant, you know, it hits above its weight as a, as a Japanese destination. Yet, because of the economic problems that both Japan Airlines and Qantas were having, they, they eliminated direct flights, geez, about six years ago, seven years ago. So finally, JAL isn't come back up yet, but Qantas has realized that there's a really big gap in the market. I, I, I don't mind flying Korean Airlines, but I have to fly two, and a, two hours the opposite direction, wait for two to three hours, get on a plane and fly back over Tokyo to come back. I lose six hours. And that's the quickest and shortest route to come to Brisbane is by going Korean Airlines. And why is there a direct flight from Seoul to Brisbane, but not from Tokyo to Brisbane? And when I say Tokyo, I of course mean Narita, which isn't Tokyo, but uh, anyway, um, some good news. Qantas has announced that they are resuming direct flights from August. Um, they probably won't be cheap. I don't care the direct flights. Um, although that said, the Jetstar, they kind of have direct flights to Gold Coast, which is about as far as Narita is actually from Tokyo. But they're really expensive, so at least there'll be some choice anyway. So um, I'm looking forward to that. And it's kind of crazy I, I say I, I know I say that about things but it's crazy that we've gone so long without a direct flight between Brisbane and anywhere in Japan it's, it's so you know it's good that they're getting that back and it means I'll be able to come back here I probably won't be coming here for Christmas from now on I'll probably come here during my son's summer holidays when he starts going to school so I'll be here in August which actually yeah it gets a little bit too hot here during summer like it's 34 fortunately there are no real 40 degree days here while forecast while I'm here it looks like it's going to be overcast and showery most of the time which is nice because that keeps it at 30 degrees it can go up into 40 if it gets too hot and that, you can't do anything when it's that hot so um, it's actually nice if you come during August the, the Brisbane is uh, the subtropics it's, it doesn't really have winter here so it's actually really nice to come here at that time of year, so I'm quite looking forward to that. But anyway, good on you Qantas, and good that we're getting those direct flights back, so that's pretty cool. Um, speaking of the happy video, of course, a lot of people pointed out to me. Um, so the music company that owns the rights, of course, the artist, uh, Farrell, doesn't own the rights to his own songs. You know, uh, the, the music company that promotes and sells his music for him owns all of his music that he makes and creates. Um, and apparently that music company sold those rights onto a new music company. Um, so, and just to get the names right, so there's a company called uh, Global Music Rights, which apparently acquired, uh, they spent a lot of money to get a whole catalog of music rights, including the rights to the song Happy by Farrell. And um, they are going round uh, all of the 
people that have licensed that music, including YouTube, saying, hey, you got to cough up some more money now um, because, you know, we're different to those guys that you signed up giving the rights to use music with. YouTube say, no, we got the rights for it fair and square. Uh, and um, they say, well, look at how many times that song has been played on YouTube and the fact that YouTube, that, that Google is ignoring them demanding their demands for more money, they're going to sue Google for a billion dollars. <laughs> um, which, if it sounds familiar, it's because that's the amount that Viacom sued YouTube for promoting their TV show, The Daily Show, making it the most popular TV show in the world. So, of course, they deserve to be sued. Um, in terms of what it is, this is actually as much a problem with, again, the whole intellectual property rights system, which is completely messed up and is being, you know, I mean, this is the equivalent of a patent troll with copyright that they acquired this in order, in order to acquire a lawsuit. I, I don't know what global music rights is, but, you know, I wonder if they um, actually are run by lawyers. Because it is, if you're a lawyer, it's a good business proposition to take this over and sue all the big companies that are, you know, using the music or trying to extort more money out of them. But, but this is what the whole intellectual property legal system is for. It's what it allows. And it allows people to protect the system that doesn't wasn't created when digital even existed you know this is these are, this is a system from the turn of the century based on regulating printing presses when stuff first became easy to duplicate um so yeah anyway they're uh they are apparently gonna it's possible that the happy video could be taken down could google could be forced to take it down and to pay a billion dollars for for that collab that we did um and if that doesn't feel intuitively correct well that's right, but that's the problem with the current legal system and intellectual property stuff, and this is why I talk about Creative Commons and all that stuff, and why that is the best solution out there that works with the current system. Although, again, there are a lot of people, including a lot of lawyers I know, who actually think that the solution isn't Creative Commons. It isn't a, a way of working within the framework of the current system, because frankly, the, people, the legal rights holders companies, they don't want people to play by the rules. They don't want licenses allowing people to use music. They, they, they're like mob. They want to shut everyone down with baseball bats or kneecaps. If that's the case, then maybe you really need to just break up the entire system. And that's something which a lot of, you know, very smart people are also advocating. Uh, I don't. I, 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 I always think that you can make the current system work. But of course, everyone has to be willing to play along by the rules, including the people with the rights. Um, but that said, yeah, it's, it's quite possible this will happen. Hopefully, I don't care. We got a good video out of it. A lot of people got to enjoy it. It doesn't have to be up there forever. You know, if it gets taken down, it gets taken down. That's up to, I hope I hope Google can help um, use their very large resources to make sure that common sense does prevail, and we will see. Um, but, uh, you know, for now, there, the ad, there are ads on that video. I did not monetize that video. The ads are on that video because, um, as is allowed, um, I'm not allowed to monetize the video, but the the, the music company that whichever Farrell is attached to, I don't know if it's this GMR now or not, um, they get the revenue from the ads that are attached to that video. So they get paid from this anyway. So, you know, I'm paying. I, I'm certainly not making any money off it, and I'm not trying to exploit anything. Uh, but um, as a, and you look, you look at these happy videos, you look, and particularly the ones in the Middle East that were done around the time of the Arab Spring, they, they were awesome. I mean, you know, and just the fact that, you know, in some of those societies, it's so difficult, you know, they're so conservative, it's so difficult to do something as simple as making a video like that, which is just nothing but pure goodness. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's very much a very simple example of youth culture trying to correct the very simple and, you know, very, very simple things that are wrong and broken that this sort of thing isn't allowed. Um, but anyway, someone's trying to make money out of it, that happens. I'm recording outside, hence the helicopters or airplanes. You'll get that occasionally as well as the cicadas. Hey, it's Australia. Um, so what else we got? We got uh, another article here. I, I just picked up another article talking about how Sony is turning. You know, that airplane noise is quite large. I might just let that go past. I used to teach in an army base school beside an air force base. I was, my dad was in the army, and we would have uh, sometimes jets fly low over the school, and you'd hear them coming. I'm sure anyone who's lived near a base knows this. The class would just, the teacher would just stop, be pointing to the board, twenty seconds. <laughs> Let them fly over. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. It's a bit nostalgic for me. So you're talking about again how uh, Sony is kind of, and Sony's getting a lot of attention, of course, because of the Sony hack, which I know a lot of people. I actually put a, a link in there as well. Some the Sony truthers are out that this was all a big marketing, brilliant marketing trick, if that's what it was. I've got my own theory on it, uh, of course. A lot of people are saying mm, this probably wasn't North Korea. North Korea is, you know being very uppity that it wasn't them and now they're being unfairly blamed for it but but they lie they, I mean when I say they, they I mean that government that regime does stuff like this all the time and they lie about it you know so everything they lie about everything that they do so they're not credible one way or another and seeing them get, get beat up you know Crimea River um, but at the same time I think it is very plausible that they didn't actually do this hack of Sony but again it draws back this whole thing about um how did Sony fall so hard from being, you know, the world's best? I mean, Apple tried to model itself on Sony when it started, you know, when, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Um, this is how respected Sony was and how did it fall? And uh, there's a good thing talking about the quality and how the quality is considered to have fallen, how they probably overly uh, diversified. Someone here saying that uh, Nobuyuki Ide, um, I always blame Stringer, although some people are saying that it was Ide's fault, for example. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think Sony should not have gotten into media content. They shouldn't have gotten into Sony pictures in the first place. They should have stuck to hardware. Um, if they were going to acquire hardware, I, I mentioned this before, if they're going to acquire hardware, uh, I'm sorry, media content, the reason that they ostensibly were looking at this in the beginning was when they tried to release new formats like MIDI disc or, or DVD or whatever, they kept getting into trouble because they kept getting sued by the, the rights holding, like like this Happy Song case, they kept getting sued by the rights holding media companies that wanted to force manufacturers, like twin cassette decks, it started with twin cassette decks that were, you know, they music companies tried to outlaw. Um, happened with DVDs, happened with mini discs, happened that, that all of these uh, content companies, music and film companies were coming and saying, if you're going to manufacture something that's going to be for the purpose of duplicating my content, you have to pay me a royalty in advance for all the piracy that this will be used for, which Sony thought was BS, but they ended up having to pay it. And it was, as I understand, the basic intent of getting into media was for changing the media companies, not for changing the hardware. But of course, as everyone knows, the media companies, when Sony took them over, the, the media company philosophy, the content philosophy took over Sony. Sony began to think, well, you know, in the end of the day, we just make good quality stuff, which is going to get made in China or Taiwan or Myanmar or wherever cheaper you know uh, the future is in controlling content they, they, they became persuaded by this themselves 
and maybe it's true but in any case they acquired they were a hardware company that acquired content in order to make the content easier to use with their hardware but instead the media companies that they acquired persuaded them to introduce DRM and make music CDs that if you put them into a PC to play to listen to they would break your PC you remember this around 1999 and 2000 um, they decided not to market uh, mini discs outside of Japan because um, people were afraid of how much copying that they would, which is what they were designed for, it's what they were designed to do, but you know, people didn't want digital copying to be that easy, so they, 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 they completely destroyed the mini disc format and everything ever since, you know, and, and plus they've tried to get ahead of the curve on the idea of uh, cheaper manufacturing by acquiring low-cost manufacturers, um, notably things like Iowa, for example, in China. And uh, now in China, you know, and their stuff is getting manufactured there, and their stuff has kind of become crap. Sony does not have a reputation for good quality anymore. They still have a good reputation for good design and innovative design, which I respect. Uh, and I still like their stuff for that, and it breaks my heart that their stuff is just so crap. <laughs> uh, but that's what it is. They're kind of, a, you know, a, they're corrupted by their media content side, and they don't make the hardware anymore that gives them the rep that allows them to hold up, and that's why people are abandoning them. And it's it's a shame. It's a tragedy, and it kind of shows. I don't know. Maybe if they'd stuck to hardware and they hadn't got the media company, they'd be in decline as a hardware company, which is certainly what's happening to Sharp, which is just stayed purely on hardware, and they're getting screwed. Uh, maybe there's no way out from this, you know. And maybe this was the best play that they could have made, and it just didn't work out. But you know, this is all that they could do. But Whatever's happening with Sony, yeah, they are definitely in decline, and you know, I, I think it is redeemable. I, I do like what Kaz Hirai is doing, like uh, reducing the focus of the company, um, you know, reducing all the product lines and so on, and trying to get everything back to basics and more simple. And the stuff that Sony's doing now is more focusing on innovation and being more interesting. I, I think he's turning the ship in the right direction. I still wonder if they really. I guess they wanted to be in media to control the game a little bit more, but at the same time they haven't done that. The game has just controlled them more. Um, if they're really not serious about that, then maybe they should get out of media. They should get out of Sony Pictures and so on. Stop. You know, why do they need those American subsidiaries anyway? I mean, I, again, I know that they're a big company now and they have to keep generating a certain revenue and profit for shareholders and so on. But I think that, you know, they really should focus on what they're good at. I want them to go back to being the Sony that I loved back in 1995-1990. Um, as a lot of people do, I don't want them to disappear. So anyway, another in uh, interesting article there. It's from Kotaku, so that was a good uh, good article. Uh, what else we got here? We've got um, Yokai Watch. What have we got? Oh, so the Yokai Watch movie. I've, I keep telling you, for those of you not in Japan yet, you want to know what's coming out of Japan get ready to get hit by I mean you're into Naruto and Pokemon and I know a lot of you are uh, get ready for uh, Yokai watch to hit I know it hasn't really launched outside of Japan yet you can I've, I've found my son watches uh, episodes on YouTube that you know reduce screen size and off-center but with English subtitles so you can already watch it in English um, it has it has wiped out uh, Pokemon certainly you can't find it anywhere and just for an idea of the impact of how big the impact of this movie is in the first so they released their first movie and remember this started as a video game that then became a cartoon that then became now it's become a movie they've just released the first yokai watch movie in the first two days released in japan it made um, taking 100 yen to the dollar which i know it's not at the moment it's, it's 120 but let's just say 100 yen to the dollar because that's what it should be it made 16.3 million dollars in the first two days 
of release, which actually topped uh, Hell's Walking Castle um, as the uh, fastest earning uh, movie ever in Japan. In fact, Rekidai Yoigaichi. So, yeah, it's two, the first two days that it's beaten every other movie in history in Japan. And it's not it's pretty it's not that different to pokemon actually it's an interesting formula whatever and you know i'm surrounded by it at the moment of course just the fact that i have to queue up for over an hour uh to buy one dollar plastic yokai watch medals that you can put into the plastic watch toy um for that these are like these the, the watch itself costs twenty dollars and the medals cost one dollar and yet people queue up for hours these people things resale on auction sites for hundreds of dollars because the, they're so hard to get, the, the Bandai can't manufacture them fast enough. Um, so it's a, a cultural tsunami of sorts is coming uh, for those people who are watching Japanese culture. It is very much focused on the primary school bracket. Although it's clever, my son is five and he's very much just into the medals and the cartoons, but you know, the kids are at higher levels. There's kind of, there's the Nintendo aspect, there's the, you know, the DS games and so on. There's kind of different levels of sophistication and also the humor itself it's actually one thing i find very unique is that it's very pop culture and parody oriented parody is not really a recognized form of humor in japan but they do it and they do it well and it's recognized as being funny which is interesting it actually got them into trouble with uh, i think it was uh ntv nippon broadcasting um that found some of their parody they're making fun of uh tv shows and non-cultural things they actually, after a show USO, they actually took it off air. It is still broadcasting on pay TV and uh, cable and, and Hulu and so on. And it still is the number one thing in Japan, even though it's banned from network TV because they got upset at the parodying of their, of their content. Um, which, by the way, parody isn't a protected form of, uh, of copy, isn't protected from copyright in Japan, like it is in US, it's, it's fair, fair use. So, um, and it's funny. I mean, I watched it, and this is the thing. The cultural references, the stuff that kids won't get, but adults will get. So it's this multi-layered kind of comedy. Uh, it's a bit like The Simpsons, you know, how you could watch it with a 5-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 20-year-old, and a 40-year-old, and you could all enjoy it, you know, because the, the humor hits different levels. I don't know if it's quite The Simpsons. You know, it's not that sophisticated, but um, it's enjoyable. And, yeah, it's kind of funny. It is going to hit really hard. The only thing is really seeing it's completely as i've said it's not, it doesn't compromise it's not designed in any way to be released outside of japan um it's very japanese content all japanese writing all through it or whatever it's not really the people who created it never obviously even thought about releasing it outside of japan plus it deals with very japanese concepts of buddhist ghosts um so how that all translates remains to be seen but um the movie's biggest movie of all time in japan so you know this is going to explode out anyway and i'm surrounded by it having a five-year-old um some other stuff that i picked out uh, there was apparently uh wall street japan uh wsj and this wall street japan is that what that is anyway they took a survey of which airport do you like better um narita or hainada which frankly is a lot like taking wall street journal wall street journal japan uh which frankly to me is like you know do you like chocolate cake or do you like being punched in the face? Uh, it's pretty much, they could ask the same poll and they'd probably get similar numbers back. Uh, it came 85% of people preferred Harina. And I, I just went through Narita again myself. And yeah, Narita's crap. It's, it's awful. And you know, 
Japan's going to be hosting, Tokyo's going to be hosting the Olympics, and most people from most countries are still going to have to come through Narita to Tokyo. They are expanding the international capacity of Haneda just because people, one, it's like 20 minutes from the city center as opposed to two hours. I mean, they, I, well, I know, that, I know that there are lots of reasons why you can't do this. They actually thought about running a bullet train out to Narita Airport, but besides the fact that Narita Airport itself um, was built on nationalized land from farmers that kind of joined up with uh, radical leftists and the Red Army to wage a terrorist campaign against the construction and still against the airport today. They still find occasionally actual mortars outside the fences of Narita that they actually, you know, there are still people who, uh, the, the construction companies involved in it still get bombs put up in front of them every now and then. Um, still happens. Um, so the idea of expanding Narita or whatever is pretty sensitive, obviously, and there was an idea of building a bullet train out to Narita, and that got canned as well. Um, they just, uh, the land, to get the extra land for the lines going out there, everyone was so sensitive and the, everyone was so resistant to giving up land to have a convenient airport. If they could do that, I would say, don't even worry about the bullet train anymore. They're talking about trying to complete the maglev to Nagoya by 2020 and how impossible that's going to be because it's not going to be due until 2025 or 2030 or something. Build a maglev, maglev to uh, Narita. Get us out to Narita in 20 minutes like we can to Haneda. That'll stop half of the complaining. The other half is that the airport itself is crap. Um, but the first half, that it takes, you know, over an hour to get there from Tokyo Station, and then you've got the time to get to Tokyo Station, you know, it's, it's a two-hour hike out there, or a 250 taxi ride, dollar taxi ride, back if you arrive there and you want to get a cab into Tokyo. Um, it's crazy, and you get to the airport, so we're waiting at the airport, there's like, geez, you couldn't find a chemist properly anywhere to buy simple stuff, the, the choices for food were a really crappy, small cafeteria or a McDonald's, uh, by the gates, there's no good food, there's no good shopping, um, it's remote, it's out, in, it's, it's so far out of Tokyo, it's crazy, and it's awful, and 85% of people uh, said that Haneda's better. Haneda's got like, it's convenient, it's got great food, it's got great shopping, it's fast, you can actually get through the, the baggage system, the, the custom system. You can get from the plane outside of that airport within half an hour, most of the time, in my experience. Maybe it's just the times that have flown. But it's convenient, you know, Narita, it's, oh, Australia is certainly worse, it's, Australia takes a lot of time to get through. But, um, you know, all Australian airports, and it's just to do with the systems that they have over here. But, um, you know, Narita takes a long time to get through. And when you finally get out, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're, you're, <laughs> you're over 100 kilometers outside of Tokyo. You're not anywhere near Tokyo. So, um, yes, indeed, people chose chocolate cake over getting punched in the face. Big surprise. Uh, if you can never get a flight into Tokyo, and honestly speaking, if it's only a couple of hundred dollars, if it's like two hundred dollars cheaper on the ticket and you can fly into Haneda or Narita instead of Haneda or whatever, if it's only two hundred dollars difference, I would pay a certain percentage amount. I would pay probably up to around a couple of hundred dollars extra for the convenience of just getting in and out of Haneda because that's just time from your life. It's not just the savings that you make from the travel costs. Um, it's about thirty dollars for a train ticket uh, from Haneda, for, sorry, from Narita in but it's just the time in your life, and uh, it's just a much nicer place to go into. I, I would be quite happy, honestly, if they would just infill all of Tokyo Bay. Haneda is, of course, an artificial island in Tokyo Bay. Um, I, would, I would be happy if they just kept expanding and creating new runways until they filled up the whole of Tokyo Bay. 
with nothing but Haneda Airport because uh, there's the demand for it from people flying in and out of Japan and uh, you know Tokyo still lacks sufficient capacity for the demand for air travel and this is why uh, Ishihara was always saying go and nationalize Yokota Air Base, the US Air Base in Western Tokyo uh, which I don't think is going to happen, but certainly there's a call for that sort of extra capacity. I, I add it all onto Haneda. You know, you don't have to confiscate rice fields. You just have to infill Tokyo Bay a little bit more. And who cares? It's Tokyo Bay. You know, there's lots of ships going in and out, but most of the ships, you know, docking Yokohama. Tokyo Bay itself is pretty polluted. I wouldn't want to swim in there or eat fish from it, so just make it an airport. I'm, I'm quite happy with that. So anyway, Haneda wins. Big surprise. I talked for a long time for that being an obvious thing, didn't I? Okay, well, we'll go on to the next thing. Um, the I don't actually have that many more topics, just looking here. There, there was a good piece by David McNeil, who is, if I've got, uh, I don't want to mistake this, I think he is the economist uh, correspondent in Japan. And um, he wrote a really, really good piece for, um, let me make sure I get this right, Global Asia, a journal of East Asia Foundation. Uh, called Blowing Up Japan's Economy to Save It, Abenomics Two Years On. And he covers a lot of stuff I talk about on here regularly that, that, that I, I complain doesn't really get covered in Western media. Um, he talks about, I mean, if I was going to say, give him advice if you're going to write this piece and these are the things that you should cover, um, it's like he took them. <laughs> it's like he took my advice. I didn't give it to him. Um, but he wrote a really, really, it's really long, really detailed, and uh, talks about, uh, you know, things like relationship with China, foreign policy, and evaluates the Abe cabinet in a pretty balanced way, which uh, Western media tends to, they just hate Abe so much that they, they can't write straight about him or anything. You know, and they tend to, the problem is, is that a lot of Western commentary on Japan, within Japan, uh, they look at the Yomiuri, which represents the largest newspaper in Japan, and represents the largest, you know, media view of how news is portrayed and communicated within Japan, and in that sense is the most normal or mainstream view within Japan. But pretty much that kind of line of editorial discussion is pretty consistently treated as extreme right-wing stuff in Western media, and the Western media stuff tends to focus on stuff which is really aligned with the Communist Party newspaper, the Akahata, or the Tokyo Shimbun, which sounds very normal, the Tokyo Shimbun, but it's actually a very left-wing aligned newspaper. Or the Asahi, which has been getting a very a deserved beating lately for lying uh, about articles that they published that they knew were discredited, and, and continuing to republish them for 15 years, even knowing that uh, for simple political purposes, it wasn't an innocent mistake. It was an innocent mistake for the first 15 years, but the second 15 years it was deliberate. And they deserve to get their asses kicked over, over over that whole thing. But the point is, is that what 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 annoys me is that when you have Western reporting on Japan, that's uh, polemic, with its polemics, which are based on a, a very 10% or less of the J Japanese population view of their own news. The problem is that it informs people in a way that when they come to Japan and they talk with Japanese, they can't connect with Japanese because they're not getting the same information on the same perspectives and they can't relate. They can't even relate to the thinking on the Japanese side. And I'm not saying that, you know, Western should be, media should become more right wing, like, you know. Certainly, the mainstream media in Japan seems to be becoming more right-wing aligned than Yomiuri at the moment, which is right of center. It's not far right, but it's it's definitely conservative. But there's no different. There's no question that in terms of current Japanese media, it represents something that's, you know, it's on the right certainly, but it's uh, it's more aligned with what 
majority of people are reading and if you want to be able to understand Japan the way the Japanese people understand it you know and not as a, a, a foreigner coming in asking stupid questions you gotta you gotta, you gotta factor that stuff in and have a bit more balance with the way that you cover it and what this guy has done is he's incorporated the stuff which I, I care about which is the, the working poor issues and the, the, the issues about how where Abenomics is falling down which the left-wing media is pulling up but also talking about you know things like for example um, the motivations behind Japan's concern, um, the motivations behind Abe and what he's trying to achieve, and the fact that he's not the devil incarnate, which you know so many people get the dislike that some journalists have, and you know, including uh, Jake, for example, I talked with him about him. And, you know, these guys are maybe with good reason as well. They have a strong personal dislike, but and it's okay. That's okay. It's okay to have an opinion about the guy, but I think you, you still have to try to put. An objective image on things. I don't. I don't like the guy, but you know, at the same time, I'm not going to be so stupid as to say that he's evil or that he's, you know. Far, I know some people are convinced that he's a he's a you know affiliated with extreme right wingers, and they'll keep reporting that way. But you know, I think you got to treat him like he's a prime minister of the of Japan. You know, and that he's a smart guy, and that he's raised in a political family in order to be this guy. And that you know, even if he holds extreme views, doesn't mean that he's not trying to do his job in a, in a rational way and you got to understand what that rationale is and not just go crazy against the guy or you know um, so anyway in terms of the um, the thing it talks about the the, the foreign policy issue about uh, it talks a little bit about the Asahi thing uh, talks about very interestingly about uh, the idea why was there an election just now and some suggest uh, this actually picks up that um, uh, a discussion I've been having recently that uh, Abe was doing this not to get a well. He was doing it to get a mandate against the Ministry of Finance. <laughs> it's a really loud chicado just over there. Um, the Ministry of Finance was, was super annoyed that he didn't give them their extra tax increase on consumption tax, which politically he couldn't have gotten away with, uh, given that Japan is in recession. But it wasn't to get a, a a mandate against other political parties. It was to get it against the bureaucrats that might have stopped cooperating with his government or that were threat, probably threatening to do so. So it talks about that, talks about working poor, talks about um, the motivation of Japan to try to, you know, uh, put an end to apology diplomacy and so on. Um, and uh, the motivations behind Japan's changed attitude in terms of foreign policy, that, that Japan's been trying to apologize and be nice about things for the last 20 years. And some people around Abe's circle certainly think that it's gotten Japan nowhere. It hasn't gotten Japan any more respect to try to be uh, discreet. And so they're thinking maybe they should be more vocal, you know, and they've been driven to that behavior in some ways by people, you know, by, by people who have not taken Japan's, you know, attempts to sincerely apologize and to, to try to deal with uh, foreign policy issues in other ways, seriously. So that's interesting. Um, it's a really great piece, actually. David, you know, I think I've read a few of his things and I think this is like his best one. Uh, blowing up the economy to save it. So if you only read one thing from my... Um, from my tonight, Tokyo Tonight Topics, from my flipboard, read this one. Um, that's really awesome. Uh, and kind of a related thing, and this is actually remarkable, the, the, the wage figures that have come out. So remember, the whole, one of the whole aims of Abenomics is to generate inflation. The whole idea of inflation is, is that people get paid more, so they spend more. And because people have more money to spend and everyone's rich all of a sudden, people keep increasing the prices and it creates a circle, of a cycle of inflation. And the idea is that people have to keep buying stuff because, you know, they know that the prices are going to go up so they don't sit on money and, you know, it generates, stimulates the economy. And that's the kind of cycle that they're trying to generate. So in order to trigger uh, an inflation cycle, 
um, they've been begging employers to raise wages so that people have more money to spend but in the absence of that they want to at least make people afraid to sit on their money so they want to raise prices and they've succeeded in raising prices one by intentionally taking over the Bank of Japan and printing out lots of money so that uh, the, the value of the currency is devalued which uh, increases the cost of uh, fuel which is imported which uh, underpins the price of everything manufactured in Japan as well as things that are imported into Japan so prices have gone up the cost of living in Japan has gone up however um, the savings rate for Japan has turned negative for the first time. People are losing money, plus people's real wages um, have gone down. And all this is happening at a time that also the, the population is rapidly now switching to... Um, it's going to be probably... So what, it's going... Oh, let me just turn this off. Uh, so what are the figures here? The savings rate was minus 1.3, which is the first time ever that Japan's actually had a net loss in savings over last year. So, so Japanese are losing, you know, they're, they're spending more money, so that sounds good. However, the other problem is, is that households are suffering from a decline in real income. They're not getting more income, they're spending money, prices are going up, people are spending more money and they're saving less, but they're not earning any more money, so they're actually losing. The rate is here somewhere. But, um, and at the same time, the number of people living off pensions, and this is also probably part of the reason that savings are going to go down, because you're going to have more people in the population living off their savings, uh, is going to uh, go down. Um, but yes, uh, you know, there's labor shortage, and, and it's crazy because wages are still going down in terms of real wages, at the same time as there's a labor shortage. So people, you think that when there's a scarcity of supply, of workers that wages should be going up but they're not be going down so yeah it's kind of uh, it's tough and that's what that's what Abe has to somehow overcome and he's been begging the Keidan men again to not just give you know one-off bonus increases like they've been doing to give actual base increases but um, which actually aligns him with the labor unions and the communist party and the socialist party which are arguing for the same thing but even the labor unions are only asking for two percent base increase which they're not going to get that's their haggling starting position when you know they've got an inflation target of like three percent they're actually even asking for pay increases of less than the target inflation rate um but yeah you know this comes back to a topic i discussed before as to whether the policy for japan should be a managed decline or you know trying to reboot it and this is partly what uh, david mcneil was talking about switching from an attitude of trying to manage japan's decline into it being you know kind of a very average bottom of the oecd country to trying to blow up the economy to save it, to try to really kickstart things again, which is what he's trying to do. The risk, of course, being that it'll leave the if it doesn't work, it'll leave the economy off worse off um, than if he hadn't tried it. But can't blame him for trying it. I mean, nothing, no one else has any other ideas. So it will be interesting to see in 2015 um, if it improves or not, or if it really just really does go down the crapper. It's it's in danger of doing. Certainly, you can't say it's all going perfectly well at the moment. Um, couple of things I just added today uh, to talk about. I didn't have that many topics. Um, there's a thing, there's an article in uh, Yomu, the English version of the Yomiuri Shimbun, the Japan News, which uh, Edo Inoue sent to me because he was featured in it. Uh, indirectly speaking, it's foreign as foreign as students are taught. There's a guy who points out cases of ignorance, basically. A couple of cases, one where people put out signs saying, no foreigners, no foreign cars allowed in this car park. This guy had a small car in Opal, which he parked. He said, you okay with that? And the guy said, yeah, sure, it's a small car. And why do you have no foreign cars? He says, oh, because, you know, I meant big cars. He says, well, why don't you say big cars? Why do you say foreign cars? He says, oh, I didn't think about it. I was just thinking, you know, American cars are big cars, so that's just what I meant. He said, went back a couple of days later, the sign was gone. 
uh, ramen shop. He said, no foreigners on the rough front of the ramen shop. Uh, Edo Inoue went there and said, why'd you put that? Or, well, you served me, why'd you put that? He said, oh, you can speak Japanese, you're fine. I said, so what's your problem? Well, my problem is I can't speak to foreign customers. I can't give, give them proper service and I'm worried it'll cause upset. And there was an incident where I couldn't talk to some foreigners and they made a huge mess. So I just put the sign up and saying, well, you shouldn't really put no foreigners. You should put, you know, only Japanese speakers or we can't speak English or something like that. He changed the sign. And uh, the conclusion from this, I think it's nice. It shows people with the patience to go and deal with and correct this kind of behavior. Um, it's a very good reflection on Eidori Nowhere and on the author himself, who is Mike Guest. Very good. However, my commentary on this, which I actually mentioned on a show earlier when we talked about this with Victor, is that, um, in a way, there's two types of racism. The author says, uh, just as some foreigners should curtail their pathological predisposition to attribute all cases to racism, um, so should Japanese students and businesses uh, avoid the propensities to assume that all foreigners are unable to operate in the society. Well, this is the thing. There's, there's arguably two types of racism. There's vicious racism of someone that I don't like that white person or that black person or that Mexican or that Polynesian or that Indian and I'm just going to beat up on him because I don't like him because of his race. And there's ignorant racism which is that, uh, oh, he's a black person, he probably can't read and write, so I'm just going to treat him like he can't read and write to help him, because that's what I think, something like that. Oh, there's a white person, he must be incredibly fat and not able to use chopsticks, so I'll give him a fork, and I'll offer him double portions, and I'll uh, suggest he lose weight. Uh, I don't know, some stuff like that. Uh, that is ignorance. Now, the, th the, the thing is, is that in terms of the act itself, Ignorant racism, of course, is not necessarily racist. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. They don't intend to be racist at all. Um, but the thing is, in terms of the victim's perspective, um, the person who's shut out of the restaurant, shut out of the car park, whether it's from vicious racism or ignorance, you know, the, the result is the same. These people, in the case of the restaurant and the car park, ignored the warning not to come in and were able to address and, you know, correct the misunderstanding or the behavior, and that's great. But, you know, if I was driving around and I thought, saw that sign, and I was driving an American car, or I saw, I, I felt like ramen and I saw foreigners only, I would be annoyed and I wouldn't go into that shop. I wouldn't go into a shop that put no foreigners on a sign on the front of it. And I would probably take a photo of it and say, everybody go and throw eggs at it or something. <laughs> um, and that guy didn't intend to be a racist person, but the impact is it's hurtful to the people who are victimized by it. And you know, remember, it's not just me, I'm fine, I can look after myself. but. When you got kids, when you got you know people, there there's a lot of collateral damage from ignorant people. And you know the thing is that people who are intentionally racist can decide when and where to behave in a racist way. You know they can see a white person and realize that you know, I shouldn't be like that now, even if they feel that way internally. And I don't know how to correct that, right? But in terms of people can correct their behavior, ignorant people can't correct their behavior and they leave victims behind. So just because they're innocent of not having the intent of hurting people, I don't think that's them off the hook at all. So my view is, is that, you know, yeah, the, these people still deserve to be berated for being ignorant racists. I think ignorant racists are worse than, race, than, than, than vicious racists, but this is a problem that exists, and credit to the people who try to address the ignorance problem, as this author does. Um, but it's some great examples there, uh, and I would say definitely in Japan, vicious racism, like mean racism, is pretty rare, actually. Uh, at least, certainly, in, in cases of white people, it's the opposite. You know, most of the discrimination is favorable. I've talked about this before. 
Uh, I know that negative discrimination definitely happens towards Chinese and Koreans, and I've, we've heard from people like Bayer that it definitely happens uh, towards black people and so on as well. Um, which isn't to say it's universal at all either, you know, but um, it exists, right? The phenomenon exists, no, no question. But there's a, there's a great deal of ignorance. And, you know, at the end of the day, if it produces the same sort of behavior, in fact, not only produces the same sort of behavior, but the person doing the behavior isn't even self-aware enough to even realize that they're doing anything wrong and that they get upset and they feel like a victim when they're accused of it. That's a problem. So, you know, I don't necessarily completely agree with the author on this. I had this debate actually with Ado and Victor directly, but, um, but credit to them for uh, correcting the ignorance thing anyway. And a good article there, so I'll put that in the thing, uh, in the flipboard. Uh, a couple of other things. Uh, in Yotsuya Sanchome, there's a new karaoke partner which is being uh, certified halal. So, very good. Japan's really putting a lot of effort into accommodating Muslim tourism, mainly Southeast Asian, uh, Malaysian, and Indonesian, but also accommodating uh, migrants to Japan. Uh, and uh, this is another case of that. I actually tweeted this, and the guy who did the consulting for it tweeted me back and said, Hey, that was me. I did the consulting on that. I asked them um, whether it could redeem my singing if when I slaughtered a song, I could somehow slaughter a song in a halal way. And he said, yes, if I, if I slaughtered the song uh, with my singing in accordance with halal principles, it's possible. I need to research some more about this. I, I might be able to recover myself a little bit better uh, in such circumstances. But it's good to see. It is good to see that Japan, and Japan, you know, as I mentioned before, has pretty good relations actually with Muslim countries, very good relations with uh, Indonesia, uh, Iran, uh, Turkey, um, Saudi Arabia. Um, and I guess it's probably Japan's relig relative religious neutrality helps with that. Um, and you know, it's definitely in terms of Japan's future, in terms of caregivers and so on, they're focusing a lot on getting people from Indonesia, so that's pretty cool. There's a good article from Gaijinpot, uh, which I've just posted here, why are Japanese people so skinny? A lot of people immediately jump onto, oh, it's because they're all anorexic. And I've had this debate before, <laughs> I've done a video on this before as well. Um, there's a lot of social pressure and a lot of awareness, it's not cool to be fat in Japanese society, and it's perfectly okay to tell people, hey, look, you put on weight. I think that's okay, because I think that's a health thing, and you know, as much as we all fear for the psychological and physical well-being of someone from being told, oh, you look, you put on a couple of pounds, HRB, uh, that they might become anorexic and traumatized and ill that way, there's no question, in terms of public health, there is a, I'm here in Australia right now, uh, I can't tell the difference between American tourists and, and Australian local residents anymore. You used to be able to tell the difference because American tourists were fatter, but there are some really, really big people here, and the public health burden, the life expectancy hit, the you know, the, the susceptibility to all sorts of disease. True from anorexics as well, but I, I would like to see any statistic that says that uh, the cost of uh, 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 of Japanese anorexia is higher than the cost of obesity on Australia or America. If you've got to go one way or the other, you know, in the end of the day, it's, it's better to have a society where it's okay to tell someone that, hey, be careful, you're going to end up unhealthy. It is a health thing, and it, and it is something that people can control. There's no excuse for, 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 for being fat. It's about portions. It's about what you eat. It's about self-discipline and self-control. Um, you know, there's 0.01% there's of people with issues that, you know, they can't control that make them fat, but honestly, yeah. so, you know, and this is a society which says, hey, you're fat, which is what America and Australia and New Zealand were like 50 years ago as well, and, you know, somewhere along the line, we decided it was too mean to tell people that, I guess people had childhood trauma memories or whatever, and we all became more materialistic, and plus it's good business to sell extra portions, right, I mean, you know, the fact that you got to, oh, we're so wasteful with food, but food business, 
you know, the idea of shoving more French fries that cost one cent that you can sell for 50 cents and you supersize them and you make them think that they're getting a extra value when they're not. There's a culture of protecting, you know, it's, it's bad business to stop people overeating. Um, it's corporate culture that's driving people to overeat, you know, and, the, and I, I think if you ask me, I, I think that they're leveraging sensitivity um, about anorexia partly to drive profits. <laughs> I think they are. Uh, it's resulted in a culture that cannot stop it overfeeding its its children with crap. And fortunately, Japan isn't there. It's on its way there. Japanese are definitely getting bigger. There is more diabetes and there's more uh, overweightness than ever. But it's being seen as, as something as, as a public health issue that has to be addressed, which is how it should be in Japan. Um, but yeah, there's a. I'm trying to show the article on my iPad and it's not cooperating with me. But. Um, it goes through all the factors anyway, and I know it's a sensitive thing for a lot of foreigners here. And I know, and I do know Japanese who have anorexia. I, I, I know a Japanese guy who had a, had a kidney failure from it. Actually, you know, he was hospitalized for months. I'm not saying that's not a serious thing and that that's not an issue with the society, but at the same time, there's no question that overall Japanese society is healthier. They live longer, and it's because it's okay to care about weight, and you should. I care about it. I lost 15 kilos the last one and a half years because Japanese people were telling me I was overweight and I felt sensitive about it. I couldn't buy clothes. Um, that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. So, you know, um, but it's a different view, especially coming from a Western country. That is all my topics. My battery's probably going to run out on my iPhone soon. I'm getting sensitive about that. So I'm hoping that you can have a good new year. I'm going to do two uh, end of year wrap-ups wrap soon. Um, they'll also be pre-recorded like this on my iPhone. So look forward to that. And um, one on tech and YouTube, one on... Um, uh, Japan news for the last 12 months and I uh, hope you're having a good break I certainly am it's hot out here 34 degrees today it's nice uh, I'm having a nice time in Australia I will uh, see all you guys back in Japan in the new year I get back on the 10th so I'll probably start doing regular shows again in the old way after I get back but for now enjoy this to hold you over and uh, see you guys again soon Peace.